Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, people now available at chicagosuntimes.com. It's the latest podcast from Suntimes reporter Fran Spielman. Around here we call her Fran the Woe Man because she's a damn good journalist, all right? This week on the show, she had Planning and Development Commissioner, brand new to Chicago, from Detroit, Maurice Cox. Here's a little bit of that. Are you talking about a massive rewrite of the zoning code? No, um, no, I'm talking about convening a conversation with Chicagoans about the wide cross-section of things that go into making up uh, the quality of life. That's transportation, that's the role of our parks, um, that's uh, housing, what type of housing we want. Uh, the, the sum total of all of those uh, is what I'm talking about. You can't isolate one item uh, because they're all interconnected. It's Maurice Cox, this week's guest on the Fran Spielman Show. Find it now at chicago.suntimes.com. Download it, listen to it, and enjoy it. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky Show is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, sponsor this program, as well as the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. We can't thank these unions enough for sponsoring this show. And of course, today's program is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's do this. It is Thursday, January 16th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, union man Jeff Johnson is back. Also making his return. Around here we call him PC. Peter Cunningham. And now your host. Yeah, we just call him Ben. Chicago Raider columnist Ben Jarofsky. Jeff Johnson in the studio, ready to talk all the issues today with Jeff. Peter Cunningham got here early, God bless him, but he didn't bring his guitar. What good is he without his guitar, huh? I'm hey! Gonna, I'm going to make him sing. He's a great guest without his guitar. Wait, time out. What's it called when you sing with uh, without an instrument? A- acoustic? No. Acapella. 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 There you I'm going to make him sing acapella. Wait till you hear Just that. have him talk about <laughs> politics. He's really good. He knows his stuff. All right. One trick pony. He's a, <laughs> no, he does know his politics. All right. Uh, before we bring Jeff on, what you got for me, D? Uh, we got an update here. We have an, uh, a campaign ad to play. Oh. It's an ad for a candidate in the 3rd Congressional District. Ben, take a guess as to which candidate. Marie Newman. Nope. Uh, Dino? Danny? Nope. Nope. Callish? Nope. Rush Darwish. Oh, Darwish. Yes. 
Okay. He's a big where'd Darwish get, fan. Yeah, where'd you get this uh, one? This from, comes from CapitalFacts.com. It says here, uh, Rush Darwish, Rich. the first Democrat running in Dan Lipinski's third congressional district to send direct mail. Uh, he now has the uh, a cable ad. This is on cable television. So if you've watched cable television and you've seen it, let us know what you think on the YouTube live stream chat. Here's the latest ad from Rush Darwish, candidate, Democratic candidate for the third congressional district. I'm Rush Darwish, and I approve this message because America deserves a choice when it comes to our health care. Choice is a fundamental American value. The freedom to choose where you live, who you marry, how you make a living. I'm the only candidate in this race who believes that we should provide Medicare for all who want it, while also keeping a private insurance market so you have a choice when it comes to your insurance. If quality, affordable health care is important to you, vote for me, Democrat Rush Darwish for Congress. There you are. Wow. That wasn't bad, right? Uh, well, you know. It wasn't, wasn't good either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have said it any better, Jeff. I mean, uh, all over the map with that's like an Amy Klobuchar shit. Exactly. Thing. Keep your health care, your private, you know, you're like trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. If you want health care or Medicare, if you want, if you want it, but, if, but you keep your private insurance, too. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about this so many times when uh, Tim Ryan, who left the race early, but was remember he was saying he was defending the uh, the union negotiated health care plans, mm-hmm. all his uh, union uh, brothers and sisters back in Ohio. I'm like, I know every union guy I know. We'd rather have the the raise exactly. and uh, let the feds pay for it. So uh, I don't know. Looks like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. I love cake. <laughs> okay, apparently loves the cake too. I'm not really feeling that commercial. Uh, no. Uh, and plus, I got to figure he's going to help Lipinski by in in the race because he's going to siphon votes from Ray oh, Newman, yeah. uh, and uh, so Lipinski's probably really happy about him his position in the race. I'm trying to pull up. Uh, audio for uh, the impeachment it's going on now so uh, the impeachment trial i'll, I'll see if i can get that before all right the show very ends. good yeah i'll discuss that with uh, peter cunningham when he comes on uh jeff all right so much to talk about uh and uh let's just start with something that's on my mind when you come on mm-hmm. uh we spend so much of our time talking about city finances city budget yeah uh and the uh, particularly because you're an expert on pensions uh, we have the obligations uh that we're facing as taxpayers in the city so one more time we uh, just start off what are the fiscal obligations that uh, we the taxpayers are facing this year in terms of pension uh, the pension contributions. Uh, oh God! Uh, so at uh, Muni, uh, the pension fund I'm a trustee on. The city has to give us approximately four hundred and twenty-one million dollars. Uh, the police fund—they're giving them. Uh, police and fire are now jumping to actuarial required contributions, so they're figuring that out. But uh, fire's uh, under a billion-dollar fund, so their uh, monthly payments are about eighty million. Uh, police are going to be somewhere in the ballpark of about five hundred and fifty or six hundred million. Laborers. Uh, pension fund is approximately i think because they're on the five-year ramp like we are and so their payments are about 55 million dollars wow. okay so a lot of money i wrote it all down yeah, yeah. uh it's a lot of money and uh so i'll start off with uh reefer, reefer. Uh, i'm a big proponent of legalizing reefer uh now i've i've always been in, in favor of legalizing marijuana uh, for just because I thought the drug and uh, the war on drugs was a total waste of time, money, yeah. uh, and I've never really believed 
that it could solve our problems financially. I thought there was limits to it, obviously. And when I see this headline, it underscores my belief even more, uh, Jeff. Uh, pot taxes in Chicago set to go even higher. Mm-hmm. Marijuana duties in city could reach 41% by July with county above about to approve, uh, approve 3% levy. The cost of marijuana is so high because of the taxes. I just got to think that most people are still going to go to the black market. Yeah, but to frame the debate, though, too, and I don't know if anybody ever touched on this or not, but uh, when's the last time you bought a pack of cigarettes in the city of Chicago? Uh, the last time would have been never. <laughs> See, right? Uh, I'll smoke. Man. I think the I think the average or the the total uh, tax on a pack of cigarettes in Chicago is right around forty three percent. And now they're talking about doing the same thing with marijuana, and everybody's losing their uh, mind about like, oh, they're going to overtax it. And now there's still a black market out there for cigarettes, and uh, the the Lucy market. When yes. I was running for state senate, I odd story but I was standing on a corner in Ogden and by Central Park area yeah. guys out there outside, outside of a convenience store and at first he's eyeing me up, up left and right and finally I'm like oh Jeff Johnson running for state senate and uh, the guy goes oh you're not a cop I'm like no he goes oh okay Lucy's get your Lucy's <laughs> and wait I'm a state senate candidate yeah that was fine yeah. <laughs> yeah. and they, they'd sell a loose cigarette for two three dollars and a guy you know I, on Friday night would go buy a one or two Lucy's and then buy a 40 and that was his Friday night. And so that market is still out there and it's going to be out there. I think we all know that. But I mean, you know, you're kind of taking away some of the underbelly, you know, component to making it legal now. And you're still going to run into the problems of like not trying to get robbed by, uh, you know, by, oh, I was going to make a comment about somebody's kid who got robbed. Uh, yeah, don't make that comment. Okay. <laughs> uh, Just I, I stop. Where going. Don't go yeah, there. Leave kids like, out of the discussion. Yeah, but leave I hear children yeah. out of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, by the way, uh, I, I feel like a lawyer who does cross-examination without knowing all the information. I forgot that you ran for state senate. When did yeah. you run for state senate? Oh, God, no. What, five years ago? Six years ago? Which district? Uh, in uh, five. So right. who was the incumbent? Patricia Van Pelt. I vaguely remember that. It, it was me, uh, Bob Fioretti, and Patricia Van Poe. Oh, my God. Bob Fioretti ran <laughs> state senator. He's now running for... Uh... Uh, yeah, he's going to be running for dog catcher. <laughs> oh, uh, well, he's it. just going down the list of things that he can run for. Uh, I, and I, I like Bob. Listen, but, yeah. I always say, Bob Fioretti helped me out of some tiff stories back in the day. So nothing yeah. but love for Bob Fioretti for me. Um, all right. So when you take a look at these obligations we yeah. have uh, for the pension, do you think uh, raising money off of the sale of marijuana or cannabis, whatever you want to call it, is going to help? Or do you think it's going to be inconsequential ultimately? Inconsequential ultimately. States getting the bulk, the lion's share of that and whatever they raise from the city, you know, it's going to go to programs or anything like that too. Uh, and it's not going to help pension funds at all. All right, so you don't even take it into the equation. No. So you think the main benefit of it is just like ending the war on drugs. Basically. Just yeah, moving exactly. on from that. Make it uh, legal. And then there's another angle there where the state gets increased revenue. And well, mind you, the revenue they're getting, whatever. And then when the state gets increased revenue, they can give more money through the state and flow to Chicago that way. So in that sense, it's just like, right, we'll have the state tax it and we'll get our... We'll get our chunk, you know, proportionally to uh, the rest of the state. So, 
Right. Yeah, because the state distributes it to back. It gives it back to Chicago if the money ultimately, if the reefer was ultimately sold exactly. in the city of Chicago. Right. And then there's this argument. I thought you were going to go here. We talked about cigarettes. I know people. The people I know who smoke, uh, whenever they're in Indiana, they buy their cigarettes in Indiana because the taxes uh, are lower. Know. A lot of my guys do the same thing. Go yeah. to Indiana, buy gas and cigarettes, yeah. come back in. Uh, Although buying gas in Indiana for somebody who lives on the north side of Chicago is a loser's game. Uh, yeah, you drive exactly. all the way down to Indiana. I say that all the time. You're, you're wasting more money driving there. Well, I like it. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I'm not giving them my money. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Right, whatever. Uh, but maybe the reverse could be argument could be made. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's uh, marijuana smokers in the state of Indiana. So well, that yeah. reverse uh, migration. Yeah, they're coming in to buy that. Yeah, uh. The, yeah. So there we go. That's an advantage we have over Indiana. All right. Uh, what about the casino update? All right. So we're not going to get any help. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they's saying that it's sh- something should happen and they expect a fix. But. They don't know how. They don't know why. It's like minor uh, comments here and there, you know. And I think part of that is that uh, the mayor's team is trying to get their f- uh, feet under them in Springfield. And by now, I think they're a little bit better. So um, before, when you know, when the last, you know, she got sworn in, and then there was the uh, session and everything, it was a little too quick to each other. Um, but I think that that you will see a fix. But right now, nobody's really talking about it. I have not heard a, a word about it at all, and. Uh, I've always assumed that they can't figure out uh, how to deal with who's going to lose the money. Because again, the way the law w- was was written, they were to see what each, uh, the operator would get a third, the state a would get third, a, third, a third, and a third, the city yeah. would get a third. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot said that that wasn't good enough for the operators. And so <laughs> somebody has to give. So who's going to give, the state or the city? So exactly. We, uh, so it looks as though the pensions aren't going to get any help on that front either. I think they will, ultimately. But yeah, this is going to be, you know, as you know, politics, uh, hurry up and wait is the uh, motto of the uh, day. So this will happen like the day before the end of the uh, session. So, uh, Oh, you think they will cut a deal? I think they will. Yeah, exactly. There's too much money to be left. And, you know, when you go into this, uh, the sports books and everything like that, you tie all that in and, you know, we're losing so much money to Indiana. So I think that it will happen. All right. I know that there's a, how should I say, there's a, a push to get it done. Finally. Uh, I will make a, a bet with you since we're talking about gambling. I don't think it'll get done. Ooh. I'm going to take that bet. Really? Uh, I, just uh, I don't, will take it. I'll take it. And uh, by the way, have you seen Uncut Gems? No, it's, no I'm not. Uh, it's a great movie. I urge you to see it. Uh, if for no other reason than to realize how serious an addiction gambling is. Mm. Uh, it's a story about Adam, Adam Sandler plays a character who's just up to his eyeballs and gambling debts and can't stop. Yeah. Uh, but... That said, I'm the libertarian hey. to me. Let's yeah. bring casinos to Chicago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I got, but it just with the, I want people to realize it doesn't. It comes with a cost. I just I don't see it, Jeff. I, I, I realize that the police and fire pensions or the police pension, police and fire, uh, yeah, are contributions dependent go on to it. that. Yeah, uh, and uh, so they need that money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I understand that we need we're depending on that money. Uh, but uh, I don't know. They got to figure out that person's yeah, exactly. deal. Yeah. Uh, they may have to back off on that one. All right. Uh, so in absence of, of relief, immediate relief from uh, the casinos, uh, in absence of immediate relief from the sale of cannabis, where will the money come from? <laughs> Tiffs. <laughs> <laughs> Just throw out Tiffs. Next. Okay. Uh, Empty the Tiffs. Yeah. Uh, um, you know the revenue like they're still missing i think it's 168 million for the ambulance fees that they're supposed to collect from uh, medicaid 
And, you know, I think the city says like, oh, it's a no brainer. They're, they're going to give it to us. I don't see I see the federal government just because of the, you know, the administration issues. Um, I see them hold that up. So that's one hundred and sixty eight million dollar blow to the uh, budget. Um, there's a couple other, you know, revenues there. Like when they did the uh, they refinanced the debt and that was a uh, hundred and eighty million dollar savings. So there's you know, that's three hundred and, uh, you know, uh, 40 right off the top. You know, that's kind of dependent upon like a one time revenue fix. What happens going forward? And we had a pension meeting today. And so what we were talking about was our long term obligations and like going forward. So the city's on a five-year ramp to pay us more money. Uh, this uh, the 2019, they gave us 341 million. Uh, then next or this year, they're supposed to give us 421 million. Jumps to 579 mm. million, and then from 579 million right now to the ADC payment, because now in 2023 we're going to jump to actuarial determined contributions. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to go from 579 million to 885 million dollars. It's about a 300 million dollar jump oh, in, in one year. In one year, and this is just for the municipal pension fund. This isn't taking into account the other three pension funds. Oh my. Mm. Um, so, but the the interesting thing uh, is that fire and police pension funds are jumping to actuarial determined contribution for them this year. So they're going to get what the actuaries say, you know, and to be funded at ninety percent by forty years. So the city can technically say that they are making the uh, co- uh, the full contributions to police and fire pension funds. And now, mind you, you know, the fire pension fund sixteen percent funded. Uh, f- police is around twenty. 5% funded. So, but they're making the additional payments to get them to 90% in 40 years. Um, so we were talking about our obligations today and like, all right, what, 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 you know, where's the money going to come from? How do we do this? Um, and, you know, for our investments, you know, for 2019, the Muni Fund returned 16.4%. And now at first glance, uh, I got people saying like, oh, my 401k went up 30% or whatever, you know. Um, but, you know, we're an institutional investor, so we have to invest in all asset classes in the event that the market tanks. So we got real estate, fixed income, hedge, you know, alternatives. And so 16.4 is pretty good. Our assumed rate of return, like what we're supposed to get, was uh, was uh, each year is 7% is what like the actuaries determine like okay over five years you're gonna get on average seven percent mm-hmm. so we beat the or we beat the uh assume rate of return uh, by more than double um so that's a good year mm-hmm. and now we're going to these all these forums and pension conferences and it's uh, tw- what's 2020 gonna bring and everybody keeps talking about you know the bubble's gonna burst sooner or later we're 10 years into a bull market and it's a matter of what happens and when does it happen and how bad is it another 08 or is it another just like some, knock some of the froth off and uh, go along? And so with the elections coming up, you know, there's a lot of fear there that if there's a uh, changeover in administration, markets tend to usually uh, do bad. Um, and if there's a market downturn, the muni fund's kind of in a very precarious position as far as what we do because we need those returns. And by most accounts, they say that the markets should do okay this year. They're not going to, you know, knock anybody's socks off, but uh, they'll continue that slow and steady up. There's going to be more volatility day to day where it's going to be down 300 one day, but it's going to be up 310 the next and stuff like that. Um, and so it's a lot of like, we're like, th- this was the first meeting, first pension board meeting of the year. And it's a lot of like, all right, what do we want to do? How do we protect ourselves as fiduciaries? How do we protect the members? How do we make sure that those pay- that money's there? Mm-hmm. Well, how do you protect 
the members? How do you protect if you're cautious, you're worried about a, a market downturn? What do you do right now? Uh, well, we've uh, well from an investment side, we've got more uh, defensive in uh, our investments, uh, so uh, to take less uh, less risk basically. So if the market's down a lot we're not gonna lose as much, but if the market's up really high, we're not gonna capture that high. So we're kind of, you know, we're starting to uh, position ourselves more defensive. Uh, we're doing a lot of defensive positions. Uh, fix, we did fixed income last year. We're doing global, uh, we just did global low volatility. And we're trying to make sure that if, it do, if this correction does come, we're gonna be protected on the downside. Are there people behind the scenes who are saying they're worried about a, a change uh, in the uh, in administration? Yeah, I've had some people that are very like apolitical, don't truly care, but it's like their market, they're these investment geeks, and they don't care about politics, but the market, they're concerned that they, just basically any change in administration in the first term, I guess historically has been pretty bad for the markets. So they're kind of worried about that aspect of things. I'm trying to remember. I remember when uh, Obama came. Of course, when Obama came in in 2008, uh, or in 2009 was when he was sworn in. Uh, right when the markets the crashed. The markets were crashing yeah. before. It had nothing yeah. to do with the change no. in administration. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's what he inherited uh, when he took office. Uh, I, I, I heard uh, this. There was the article that I've been sending to my guests to read, yeah. the assigned reading for today. Uh, look at uh, Peter. He's supposed to be reading and taking notes. Uh, Rick, oh, yeah. Hold on. Rick Wilson's uh, article. And uh, Rick Wilson is a Republican strategist. Um, this is how he made his career, uh, counseling Republican candidates on how to defeat Democrats. Uh, woke up one day and decided he cannot stand Donald Trump. And so he is probably, he's advocating very strongly. He's written books. He goes on talk shows. What Democrats should do uh, to defeat uh, Donald Trump. I'm always a, a little wary about taking advice, electoral advice, uh, from anyone who is a Republican. Uh, <laughs> I would love to hear what Peter Cunningham has to say about that as well as you, uh, uh, Jeff. But one of the things he talks about in, in this article that, uh, that I I just read by him is how uh, the tax cuts by Donald Trump have juiced the market. That's what he called it. It's juiced the market, yeah. uh, and that effectively the market is higher, uh, is mm -hmm. abnormally higher, artificially higher than it would ordinarily be. And so it, it, there will be there will be a fall. Yes, and you know, with uh, the president leaning on the Fed to lower the rates, and when he did the uh, tax cuts to juice the market, an example. The problem is he's out of bullets though, and so he, they, he's exhausted kind of what he can do for the market from that angle of things, and so it's almost to the point where um, you know if there's if there is a market uh, correction, what's what can the Fed do, right? You know, their, their rates are so low. That it's like shit. Excuse me. Yeah, you're allowed to. It's uh, a podcast. Uh, podcast. Like I said, so, so the feds. What are going to do? Lower? How how much lower can yeah. they go before we're in negative uh, yields? Um, and it's a matter of I think that that's a, a fear from an investment standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, is that you know? And then you, you from a union standpoint, you look at how like you know the whole trickle down uh, theory. You know, we're going to give the tax cuts to these businesses. And that's not happening. Uh, you know. The, uh, board members got better uh, compensation packages, but um, it does concern me in that sense that, you know, I'm not going to say they're overjuiced, but, you know, because there's a lot of volatility day to day, you know, and 
Um, but it's something that, like, like I said, they're out of bullets to do anything. All right. Uh, let's move on to a politi- national politics since mm-hmm. I raised the subject of Rick Wilson. And uh, one of the arguments that he makes uh, in his article is that um, the, the Democrats should not, under any circumstances, uh, nominate uh, Bernie Sanders uh, as their candidate. <coughs> uh, he believes that uh, Bernie Sanders would be uh, unable to win over the voters that the Democrats need to defeat Donald Trump. And this is coming from a guy who claims that more than anything else in the world, he wants to defeat Donald Trump. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, reading the article, and he has a very just a, a common sense approach of you just want to be up there, whoever the Democratic candidate is, and you're going to go, I'm not that guy. And people are going to go, oh, okay, I'm going with you. Um, how'd that work out for Hillary, right? You know, you could have put, I say, if you put any, or not any, but most any other person in that spot, Donald Trump's not our president. People actually came out to vote against her because they didn't like her. There's people that I talked to, they're like, I I wasn't going to vote, but I don't like her. Like, Jesus Christ, really? (laughs) Um, And so you get into that where it's like, you know, your campaign is going to be, I'm just not him. And I, I, I have this conversation a lot with people. I think Trump is keeping his base. And then you have your his vocal base, and then there's this uh, what do they call it the silent, the silent train or the silent. There's this term out there for the Trump supporters that in public won't say. Who, oh, that's a dentist theory. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, mm-hmm. that um, you know, and they call it. There's a name, the silent uh, troop or the silent Trump or whatever it is, and you know they listen to people like you know in like reg- regular conversations like oh that's knucklehead, and then they just sit there and don't say anything. And like at quick appearance, like, oh, no, he doesn't he doesn't he didn't defend Trump, but he didn't knock him. And they're just laying low and not. And so there's that theory that there's a large chunk out there. And unless there's a good candidate that really hits a lot of the bases, uh, um, you know, I say and I, I say this and I, hopefully I'm wrong, but I think Trump wins reelection. And I got four bets and, you know, whatever I I. I Tell people vote your uh, vote your pocketbook, right? You know, because in markets and jobs and job security and whatever. But um, I think he wins re-election right now. Why do you say that? He keeps his base. Uh, anybody on the fence is going to look at the markets. They're going to look at the you know the, the economy. Their four hundred one k. They're going to look at their situation, even though you know there's some income inequality going on and people are working two and three jobs. But then you got Trump, you know that gets up there and says all this stuff about you know how things are great and everyone like oh okay you know so he wins that middle road that's on the fence that like yeah sure he, you know he could be a knucklehead sometimes and you know and the common comment people take away they should take away his twitter account other than that most people just you know go about their daily day and everything's going fine yeah uh the dentist theory is that uh we might as give the credit where credit is due uh thank you that uh that uh well, I, there's there's two part theory. I've added my own uh, uh, part to it, but uh, you can't really believe uh, when white people say they're not going to vote for Trump. Mm. They're okay, and I add to that. What do you mean? Well, I, I, it's a two part theory. It's really my theory married to Dennis's. My theory is you can't believe it when uh, a black person says he's going to uh, vote for when he tells a pollster he's going to vote for Trump, and you can't believe it when a white person says. Uh, he's not going to vote for Trump uh, because uh, there's a guilty, there's a sense of guilt that there uh, people are embarrassed 
to say they're voting for Trump. The, the, the reason I put the, the racial distinction on it is because I think all these polls that show that Donald Trump's black support is like 8% or 9%. Uh, are not matched by any voting results. If you take a look at any actual voting results from the 2016 election uh, in, in a black ward or black precinct, Donald Trump got at best 1%. So my takeaway is, oh, there's a group of voters who lie to the pollsters about how they're going to support Donald Trump. And then there's another group of voters and it's uh, who lie to Trump that they're not going to that lie to the pollsters that are not going to vote for Trump. So I think that there's the, I think that the, the American voter is not telling the truth to yes. pollsters. Exactly. And they, <laughs> they distinct it. So it breaks down different ways. Uh, this has been my sense. So I, I think that's what you're getting at when you yeah. talk about the, t- the silent, the silent. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, um, I'm going to end this conversation by saying this. I hope you're wrong. Uh, we've already made two bets. I'm, mm-hmm. I think I'll take the bet with you just for the there sake of go. it. But right. I still think I'm going to win that casino bet because I don't see that coming down the, the pike anytime soon. Wait, when, when do you think it's going to happen by May or January? The uh, casino? May. May. Okay, yeah. so you give yourself all the way to May. Right? Exactly. This bet will drag I'll, on to May. I'll, I'll take the, <laughs> the over on the time. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing that Rick Wilson says, uh, which is uh, he just said, Democrats, his advice to Democrats, forget the popular vote. Just campaign in Wisconsin, yeah. Michigan, Pennsylvania, play and the, Ohio. Play the electoral game. Yeah. Yep. He goes, that's what Trump did, and it worked for him. So uh, yeah. anyway, Jeff Johnson, thanks so much for stopping in. All Appreciate right. it. No collusion. No collusion. No Thank collusion. you very much, uh, Donald Trump. We got uh, Peter Cunningham on deck. We'll bring him on when we return. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. There are people here I know who disagree with me about this proposal, and that's healthy in our democracy. But to be clear, doing nothing is not an option. Hey, everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind, but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel.
Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Peter Cunningham in the studio. Peter Cunningham in the studio. Political strategist comes in once a month. We talk politics. Sometimes he brings his guitar. He didn't bring his guitar today. Yeah, uh, I didn't bring it. I didn't bring his cold. My guitar is yeah. made out of wood. It doesn't take the cold very well. It's okay. Well. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Why? I want him to bring the guitar. It's cold out. <laughs> if I brought it, I was going to sing Everybody Must Get Stoned because we, that's the new theme, right? Yeah, I sang it at, at the start of the, sh- the show. I uh, they, At the start of the show, what we do is we, we check the mics to see if they're working, so I sing a song. Uh, if that doesn't drive away every listener we ever had. Uh, and so... I, in honor of you, I sang. Everybody must get stoned. Bobby D. Bob Dylan, you got an update, young man? Yeah, uh, I'm trying to find the uh, uh, the video here of uh, the impeachment hearings. I'm going back and forth here. It looks like they're on commercial breaks or pundits are talking. So I have a few clips here that I found on ABC News. Shout out to them for the audio here. First up, we got uh, Representative Adam Schiff reading the impeachment articles. Uh, shout out once again to ABC News for the article. It's okay you didn't bring your guitar, Peter Cunningham. Don't worry. In the history of the Republic, no president has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House of Representatives to investigate high crimes and misdemeanors. This abuse of office served to cover up the president's own repeated misconduct and to seize and control the power of impeachment, and thus to nullify a vital constitutional safeguard vested solely in the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. All right, Peter Cunningham, the last time you were on the show, I think, as I recall, you were a little cautious about impeachment. That's my memory. of It's been a while. Uh, What's your thoughts about it now? Here we are. The Senate is about to begin the trial. What's your thoughts about it? I mean, the um, the open question was whether it helps us politically and not. The closed question in my mind was whether they had to do it, and they had to do it. What he did was uh, absolutely an abuse of power, and what he, you know, obstructing obstructing Congress the way he did is uh, entirely uh, unacceptable. Uh, you know, we set up a system of checks and balances, and we're supposed to live by that. Uh, there's so much more <laughs> about this guy that's just uh, despicable. I mean, Cass Sunstein, he's an um, Obama official, uh, he's written a lot of books. One of the points he made is that uh, you don't have to break a law to be accused of impeachment. You can just be derelict in your duties. If you stop going to work, for example, which Trump does a lot, but, uh, you know, you could be impeached for that. And so he's done so many things from lying to, to you know, hiring his kids to, you know, uh, just uh, spending public money in his own golf courses and things like that that is just so outside the norm. Um, but what he did here, I think, is absolutely, he needed to be impeached. You know, the open question, again, is does this play to his strength or to his weakness? I hope it plays to his strength. They had to do it under any circumstances. Wait, you say you, you hope it plays to his strength? I'm sorry, I hope it plays to our strength. Is what to, I mean. to the Democratic strength? Yeah, I mean, I think, I hope that voters reward them for it which they should, um, but, you know, voters are fickle. Well, we were talking about that uh, with Jeff before you came on, uh, the notion that uh, voters lie, just flat-out lie to pollsters, so it's really hard to gauge uh, where the voters are, so it's yeah. sort of difficult to make a policy based on what voters... You should probably just make the policy based on what you think is best for the, the country. That is a radical thought, Peter Cunningham. Yeah, and I think 
But I, I also think that it's helpful to know where people are at. I think if you say, okay, we want to do a Green New Deal, but nobody supports it, then you got to think about how to frame it differently or how to sell it differently or how to build public will for it. Um, but, you know, it's not going to get you very far if you just propose stuff that nobody supports. So I think, I think it's helpful to get a sense of where people are at. Michael Moore was talking about the fact that no one knows how to poll working class middle Midwestern voters back in September of 2016. He predicted Trump would win uh, two months before the election. And that's specifically what he was saying. People don't know how to poll white working class voters. So, Well, I don't know how you can poll anybody who's making up an answer. <laughs> I don't know. It's like one of the tricks they do is they, they do this. Uh, I'm not asking you how you feel, but how do you think your neighbors feel? Oh, yeah. That's one of their little gimmicks to sort of see if they can figure it. But again, can you really hang a political strategy based on what people say they think their neighbors feel? That gets a little bit uh, funky. Also. Well, that gets into now. All right. That gets into the issue that uh, the great Bernie uh, Elizabeth Warren spat. Uh, the issue is, uh, can a woman uh, be elected? president of the United States. Uh, and where did I, I, I it was uh, a response that people gave and poses. Well, I have no objection to uh, voting for a woman, but my neighbor objects to it. So when you hear that, what's yeah. your takeaway? I think it, it reflects a sense that that people don't think they're ready, you know, that they, they think others aren't ready. And therefore, they're sort of, uh, you know, throwing some shade on the idea of a woman being elected. So you think there's some uh, merit to that notion that a woman cannot be elected? I think there's some sliver of the electorate that probably votes uh, against women uh, just uh, reflexively, just as there's a sliver that votes against people of color, people who are gay, uh, people who are different. Um, you know, I, I do. I think there's some people who still vote based on those factors. But do you think, how strong a factor do you think it was with, when Hillary Clinton was? Small. I think it was small. I think America is ready to elect a woman. And the fact is, she got more votes than Trump. So, you know, they did elect a woman. Yeah. It's just that we have this electoral college with its quirks. But I don't think the woman factor was what hurt her. I think what hurt her was, uh, was I think it gets to what's wrong with the Democratic Party, broadly speaking. They've just lost touch with working class people. And, uh, and you know, they don't speak to them in a way that they understand. Bernie's figured out a narrative that connects on one level. The economy's rigged, the economy's rigged, you're getting screwed. That's one narrative. The narrative I always push, as you know, is we have to remind them that we fight for the middle class promise. We fight for the basics, jobs, home, health care, education, retirement. That's what Sherry Bustos is pushing very, very hard in all of those uh, red to blue districts. She runs the DCCC. And every day she's tweeting about health care costs because that's what polling tells you people are most concerned about. Voting, working class people are most concerned about health care costs. They have jobs, as we know, the economy's strong, but they are really, really worried about health care costs. They're still afraid of going bankrupt. They're still afraid of a serious illness breaking the bank. Uh, that is why I, I find it baffling that the Republican Party would uh, tie itself to a policy of eradicating what's left of Obamacare. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand <laughs> it. I don't understand why working class voters uh, do that. I guess it's because uh, they, they're tapping into something else, maybe that racial, racial issue. They're tapping in and saying, this is Barack Obama's idea of this. This is socialism. Maybe that's part of it, too. But I think it's also race. 
When you did you watch the last debate? I did. Yeah. All right. Uh, everybody that's come into the studio has addressed the debate. Uh, do you think there is an implicit implicit bias uh, by CNN and their commentators uh, against not just Bernie but just the sort of left of center uh, uh, viewpoints that Bernie expresses? I think the whole debate has been framed as the left versus the center. And, uh, you know, take health care, right? We've, we've turned this debate about Medicare for all versus public option or versus, you know, the centrist approach as if that's the biggest debate going on in the Democratic Party. The fact is, Bernie would sign a public option bill if it got to his desk and couldn't get Medicare for all. He wouldn't veto it. And Pete Buttigieg would sign Medicare for all if it got to his desk. He wouldn't veto it because it's progress. It would, it's, it's not their ideal version. But I don't think that debate is what really divides the, Ameri- the, the Democratic Party. I think uh, what does divide the Democratic Party? I think the fact that we have so many people focused on single issues rather than people coalescing around one broad central vision, one common vision of what... What, what the country should, should, should be doing. I think we're divided because we have upper-income people who don't feel the economic, economic inequality issue as much as others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there's a big division in the Democratic Party about whether climate change is our number one issue or not. Some people think it is, and some people don't think it isn't. You wrote an essay with uh, Mayor Powar. We'll get into that. At, uh, Alderman Powar. Uh, yeah, well, former alderman uh, Pawar. You said Mayor Pawar. No. Oh, I you said, said a mayor. mayor. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I did not promote him. I know who he is. He was my alderman for eight years. Yeah, I remember how back. excited I was when he when I saw him uh, debate uh, way back when, when he was uh, running for the very first time. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll get into the uh, that essay, the notion that there is a common, bo- go, uh, there's just like a, a common, what, commonness that binds us, unites us. Um, I like to believe that's true. Uh, I'm a little concerned that it may not be true, but I just want to take one point. I'm not sure. Uh, you could be correct that Mayor Pete would sign. Uh, you're probably correct that Mayor Pete would not veto a Medicare for all bill. But I just don't know if a Medicare for all bill would be possible uh, in a Mayor Pete administration because he wouldn't be pushing for it. It's so difficult to get something like Medicare for all through. that You really have to have like an LBJ type president who's like, yeah. this is what I want. I have to say that, I again, I feel the, the debate is on the wrong issue. The, the real issue is costs. Most people in America have health care, whether they get it through the government or whether they get it privately. The problem is, is the costs. And yet we're all debating how to either give you know the, the, the sliver of people who don't have health care more health care or whether to shift it all to publicly funded to get rid of you know premiums and things like that that you know, Bernie's saying are co-pays. But... The real issue is cost, and I, I don't know what, whether Medicare for all or public option is going to do a better job of lowering costs, but that is what's on people's minds. Yeah, how much money it costs to have uh, health care, how much money comes out of your paycheck uh, every two weeks or every month uh, to pay for your premiums, uh, that cost. And then if you're in a private uh, insurance, good God. But your deductibles are, you know, I mean, not everybody has these Cadillac plans like the public, the public <laughs> officials who make the laws. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say the Chicago Reader employees yeah. uh, uh, when you started off. All right, let's talk about uh, the notion of a common good. Do you really, you actually believe that? Well, what I believe and what we said in the piece is that 
American history uh, has many, many examples where we put the common good first. Um, we, I used the example of a rugged individualism as sort of this myth about how America was built. And really, America was much more built by public-private partnerships uh, or by communal activities, whether it's the wagon train. Okay, Lewis and Clark had 30 guys with them. They weren't actually just on their own, you know. Uh, the, the, you know, we, we settled the West with the wagon train. We became the breadbasket of the world because of the Homestead Act and because of the Department of Agriculture and because of the land-grant colleges and because of crop subsidies. We have all these examples. You know, every, uh, you know, the tech industry has t tons and tons of government research in every single iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we move our society forward. And yet we have... Uh, uh, fallen into this myth over the last few, 40 years, really. Reagan was the one who really uh, got it into the public mainstream, that trickle-down economics. Just greed is good. Trickle-down economics works. Uh, just, you know, make sure that the people who are most aggressive and most aggressive at getting money have as much money as possible because it'll trickle down. Well, it doesn't trickle down. Uh, we have astonishing income inequality today. So I believe we have a trickle-up economy. So to me, the best economy is one that puts as much money as possible into the bottom so that that money then trickles up. They, people, they pay rent, they buy groceries, they buy retail, it moves into the banking system, eventually it moves into the investment system, and it ends up on Wall Street again. It's like a tree. It's like the fruit of a tree. It all comes up. <laughs> yeah. And then what happens to the fruit of a tree at the end, Ben? It falls to the ground, oh, right? Okay, yeah. And it replenishes the soil. Yeah. That's the way the economy really works. <laughs> uh, I thought you were saying I, somebody eats the fruit. I didn't know where you were going with that. But you're starting well, to sound a little like me, uh, Peter Cunningham, <laughs> uh, like you've been a reader writer your entire life. But, but take education is an issue that you know I've done a lot of work with. Mm -hmm. So as long as we're all acting in, only in our self-interest, I've got to get my kid in a great school then you're gonna have certain outcomes, right? You're gonna have magnet schools and a few people getting into magnet schools. It's only until you start thinking about other people's kids and you say, you know what, it's really not right that we underfund low-income schools more than wealthier schools. We spend, on average, $1,000 less per pupil nationwide mm -hmm. on lower-income kids than we do on higher-income kids. So unless you say to yourself, I wanna be taxed higher so that we can make that equitable, then it's not gonna happen. You have to, and you have to see that that's actually in your interest, because as long as we underfund low-income kids and undereducate them, we're going to have an underclass that is struggling to be part to share in our prosperity. You have to think about other people. All right, I buy that, but I've not seen evidence, uh, definitely in the last thirty or forty years, that people do view see a connection between their life. Right. And uh, the life of a poor person. And to bring it home even more, look at the affordable housing issue, right? Everybody says they're for affordable housing, but you ask them if they want to build it in their neighborhood and they don't want to build it in their neighborhood. Yeah. I talked to Pawar about this. I said, how many affordable housing units did you build in your ward in eight years? <laughs> and he said about 10. Yeah. He said it was just impossible. It, it, just, it just was impossible to do. And now we have California with just an absolute crazy affordable housing crisis because of all these local zoning laws that make it impossible to build affordable housing. People have to say, I want this. Yeah. I want this so that that low-income family can live in my community, and I'll, they don't want to. I'll, I'll, I'll take it one step further. You know, I happen to know a little something about uh, Autumn Poor's ward, because I live in it, and uh, the investment that the, the city of Chicago made in those local public schools 
uh, had the uh, a, a result of raising uh, the cost of living in that neighborhood because suddenly realtors said, we have the best schools in the city of Chicago. You want to be in the Coonley School District? That's a premium. And that right. would ra- they would use that to promote the sale of, the, of housing, would raise the value of the house uh, on the market, which would make that neighborhood that less affordable. So it had the counter effect, if, if, if you will, of this goal of affordable housing. Right, and that's true in neighborhoods all across the city. I wrote another piece a couple of months ago in the Sun-Times where I talked about how Austin and Englewood would really benefit by having an influx of middle-class families. And a bunch of people said, oh, well, that'll lead to gentrification. Okay, well, there'll be a little bit of gentrification, but you'll also have thousands of families and homeowners there and filling up the schools there and buying things in those neighborhoods. So I think the gentrification issue is, is, um, is, is complicated. The only, I always say the only thing worse than gentrification is no gentrification. I mean, you got to have some development. you got to have growth. All right, before we get into the gentrification issue, I have to get you to put your political strategist hat on uh, and talk about uh, the uh, showdown that occurred at the debates uh, between uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, what impact do you think that has on either campaign, and how would you deal with it if you were a political strategist, for, let's say for Bernie or, or Elizabeth Warren? Oh, I think that um, I don't think it's helped either of them. I think it just made it look like they're having a spat and, you know, it didn't gain votes for either of them to have this out. And I think the one of the theories is that other people really fanned the flames on this issue, that it, it wasn't them who put it out. But a lot of people trace it to Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's campaign. So maybe I'm wrong about that. But, uh, you know... Uh, I think it's not a big deal, really. You think ultimately it fades? Yeah, yeah. I think it just, yeah. I mean, is it possible Bernie said some version of that in within a context? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he said something like that. Does he really believe a woman can't get elected? I don't think so. So I just think it's something that it's either a context, uh, something taken out of context, or not true. Mm-hmm. And in Elizabeth's case. She has a little bit of a trust problem because of some of the things in her past. You know, I've seen more, you know, I've seen a number of people raise the uh, Native American issue. People, I I would have thought everybody would dismiss that issue, but I hear it coming up. And and so now, uh, you know, you get into the whole issue of lying and lying, and that doesn't help her, you know, because some people think that she's, uh, you know, been a little loose with the truth on a few things. Well, I don't. I don't buy it. You know, I think she's a terrific candidate. I think she's got a great platform. I think she's a, run a great campaign. Uh, she stumbled a little bit. So, you know, but I mean, everybody stumbles at, once the heat gets hot. Uh, gets up there. Yeah, I guarantee you, uh, if either Bernie or Elizabeth Warren is the nominee, uh, this issue will be re- raised uh, by the Republicans. I guarantee you. This what issue? That that Bernie said a woman can't yes. be elected? Yes. Uh, in fact, I go one step further. Uh, th- this, this is just a, re- a replay of 2016. When the Bernie had the, the, the Bernie-Hillary uh, split, 
uh, and then the the computer, the emails were uh, released right on the eve of the Democratic convention, completely undermined the talk of a common good at, at at the very worst time for the Democratic Party. Those emails were released. So the total cynic in me yeah. thinks the hackers have already received got all the trashy emails uh, already, and they're ready to release. I hope I'm right. Not. Well, I, I'm I'm not surprised. I'm sure that the hackers are the ones who are planning this, but. But you know, what's what? What's Elizabeth's advantage in escalating this more? I don't know. I, well, her advantage, I, I believe that it was. She had a good. She had a good debate. Generally speaking, she had a good de- a debate, and she had a great counterpunch on the issue of electability. And yep. uh, you know, she she delivered. She had, the line, it. she had the line of the night. She had the line of the night. She delivered it well. She kind of lost it there. I don't know what that. I don't, it was a bizarre moment where she said nobody has won, defeated a Republican incumbent within thirty years. And then Bernie said, "Well, I defeated one," and she goes, "Was it thirty years ago?" You know, and then, I don't know if you. Saw I know that, that was it's so like, silly. It, it, it was exactly thirty years ago. So yeah. I don't know who's right. I don't know who's yeah. <laughs> you have to look right. at like when did it happen with. In the 30 years i mean she just looked bad in that one but in general i i think it's pretty clear to me that it was a tactical decision by the elizabeth warren campaign to try to exploit whatever bad feeling there was left over from the hillary clinton bernie fight on the issue of some bernie bros being vociferous and their support of bernie right and clearly that, a tactical issue right and there's some image of him being a misogynist and so it just fed that yeah, and so that's why she played it. So it's not like she's innocent in all this. You know, it's hardball Chicago politics by a, a senator from who's not even from Chicago. Yeah. Uh, all right, speaking of Chicago, we're going to take a break. We come back, we're going to talk some political uh, Chicago issues, talk about crime. Uh, Peter Can- uh, Cunningham always uh, discusses uh, how uh, policing issues when he comes on the show, and he mentioned gentrification. We'll get into that as well. We'll be right back with Peter Cunningham. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. It's Chicagoland's adult entertainment playground. It's the world-famous Admiral Theater, 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. The Admiral is homegrown from Chicago, and it's the most conveniently located club in all of the city. 15 minutes from the O'Hare Airport in downtown Chicago Loop. Voted Chicago's best strip club, the Admiral has showgirls galore and a variety of adult entertainment shows. The world-famous Admiral Theater, open every day from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m., 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. For events, showtime, and other information, visit AdmiralX.com. Must be 18 years of age or older to enter. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question, Mayor. Good question. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky uh, Show. <laughs> Live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Mr. Jarofsky, take us home. All right, take us home. Don't bring Maya in the studio. That was uh, uh, Mayor uh, Lightfoot uh, asking the tough questions of Hillary Clinton. And Maya goes nuts every time she hears that. Peter Cunningham is our guest in the studio. Did not bring his guitar, but next time we'll bring his guitar. Or okay? if you don't, it's fine. You're very <laughs> smart and you like talking politics with us. It's okay. You don't have to bring it. All right. Really good musician, though. Really good. Yes, he is. You sang a song last time it was about like uh, being on a beach I think it was that was that was wait real, was that last time or the time before that was the last time oh he did the John Sebastian song the time before yeah he's like every other time he brings the guitar then he goes you know what Ben I'm spoiling you with this guitar thing and then he doesn't bring the guitar I've noticed that Cunningham yeah. like he brought the guitar then he didn't bring the guitar then he brought the guitar now he's not bringing the guitar <laughs> 
I know. I'm, I'm on messing with our host's head. Now, is there like a website or a link or anything that, where people can find your music or anything uh, like that? Somewhere. You... I'm not sure. Bandcamp, I think it's called uh, uh, Bread and Butter Band something or other he's a rambo oh boy man. i tell you what a master of the internet i don't know it's somewhere know. i'm there. so 1990s i'm sorry <laughs> okay All right, well mark zuckerberg in the studio ladies and gentlemen he's got a cassette tape out there somewhere <laughs> so 90s uh, uh, but no before we get out of here though uh, we went on the uh ben Jarofsky show twitter page and we asked all of you a question in regards to uh the debate that happened a few days ago simple question did you watch the debate that was the question, all right? You had three options to choose from. Your three options were, one, every bit of it. <laughs> Two, not a chance. Yeah. Three, I glanced. All right, I glanced. Those are your three. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Pat Whalen, our, uh, our social media guy. He's the one who uh, put this question up here. The results are in, all right? Listeners, I know you're excited. Hang on to the wheel, please. It's going to be uh, exciting stuff here. All right, did you watch the debate on Tuesday is the question. In it, 20%. Every bit of it. All right. And it's a neck and neck tie here. 40%, not a chance. And 40%, I glanced. Wow. Uh, I watched every bit of it. I've watched every bit of every debate. Uh, I'm a junkie. What can I tell you? I, I what does it say about your listeners here? 40% not a chance? Yeah, not a chance. <laughs> 40% just a glance? N- nihilists. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, uh, th- that's the Twitter followers, yeah. And uh, we wanted to do one more thing here. Uh, we're, it's something <laughs> I'm just made up. New segment here on the program, all okay. right? We're always trying to reach out to our YouTube live stream chat. And uh, every day, hey, we'll do this. We'll do uh, the live stream chat champion. How about that? All Whoever right. had the best live stream chats of the day will award them. I mean, you they win nothing, but no. I mean, uh, we'll send them that blue Mustang. Okay, we don't send prizes. Oh, okay. All right, uh, first up here, Daniel. Daniel waited on the YouTube live stream chat. Uh, it's been a while since he's done it. I'm glad he's back here. He put here, I think appealing to voter on an emotional level is much stronger than engaging them at an intellectual level, which is why Trump has turned out to be such a good political actor. Well, so Daniel says. Uh, that is essentially uh, Rick Wilson's uh, argument. I, I made Peter read this long interview with uh, Rick Wilson, who's the Republican who hates Trump. And he's saying people uh, hate Trump. So that's where you should go to get the voter to defeat Donald Trump. They hate him. 42% love him. They're going to vote for him no matter what. But the rest hate him. I've uh, heard the same theory from a prominent Democratic uh consultant david axelrod yeah. he thinks that the winning argument is just exhaustion people are just exhausted by this guy and he doesn't mean everybody obviously trump's base is one thing but that, those voters in the middle uh, a lot of them non-college educated women are got to be just sick of this guy even if they agree with him on some issues they just have you know just the circus the everyday circus is enough to just make you just want to turn off and he think that's a he thinks that's a winning argument well, it, it is interesting though it does seem kind of productive the notion i'm exhausted so i'm gonna vote against donald trump you need to be fired up to vote you go i'm, I'm exhausted i think i have the energy uh. i agree and this is my one um <laughs> argument against rick wilson's uh, theory yeah. about just going negative on trump all the time yeah. i mean certainly he is you know got a lot of flaws and you can highlight that but ultimately i do think people need to vote for something so what is it they're voting for and this is where I keep coming back to my middle class promise. Rather than, and this is where I kind of agree with them, rather than these highly specialized policy plans. As I said, the argument about Medicare for all versus public option is not an argument that anyone's having in their own life. 
All they're arguing about is health care. Make sure I get it, and can I afford it? So that's what we should be saying. You will get it, and you can afford it. Mm. Well, uh, there might be a lot of people who don't believe you can get it uh, with anything resembling the current system. You have another update? Uh, that was uh, Daniel's comment here. Uh, we had a gentleman by the name of Brian V. He weighed in today. Uh, it was his first time on the live stream chat. And, well, if you ask our live stream chat room, probably they hope it's his last time. He's uh, of the Trump persuasion, oh, Brian Trump V. Persuasion. He okay. wasn't being a troll, though. He's being as polite as he could be. But when they just say stuff that our listeners disagree with, they kind of go at him. But Brian V. said today, it doesn't matter who it is. Trump will win in 2020. If Bernie isn't the nominee, a lot of his voters will vote for Trump. And honestly, nobody is strong enough to beat Trump. Mm. All right. Uh, well, for, okay. <laughs> well, he's kind of uh, contradicting himself within the same sentence. He says, nobody is strong enough to beat Trump except for Bernie. Well, that suggests that Bernie is strong enough <laughs> to beat Trump. All right, let's get that sentence together, all right? All right, so that was Brian uh, Editing v. Brian's and, th- sentence. And finally, <laughs> it is our live stream chat champion of the day. Okay. Brand new segment, just made it up. Maybe we'll do it tomorrow if it goes well. It's Brianna. Oh, Brianna. Yeah, okay. Brianna weighed in with quite a few comments today here. She says, uh, first off, uh, no John Cass equals no big loss. That's what she said. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell earlier. Uh, Peter Cunningham uh, about that. She also said, I don't see uh, any dim candidate who can control Donald Trump. We need a street fighter. The dim lineup doesn't understand how to hit someone in the face. And then she went on to say, one huge plus for Bernie is that he doesn't have the baggage Trump does. There are a lot of people holding their nose to vote for Trump. His behavior is distasteful for many of his voters. Congratulations, Brianna. You are today's live chat champion. Now, the the uh, John Cash reference, uh, Peter, was uh, we start, I started off the show having a little fun with it. Uh, his column today. Uh, was taking uh, defending Bernie. He said that there was a bias on the part of the uh, CNN uh, uh, questioner. I was like so startled that John Cass would write a column defending Bernie, you know, against media bias. And then I went on the internet and started doing an investigation. I saw it was like a t- Republican talking point. So immediately the cynic in me, Peter. Yeah. I, I thought, oh, Republicans think Bernie's the candidate. He, they can beat. They can beat. <laughs> They're yeah, right. promoting Bernie. Right. So I'm a Bernie guy as much as the next one, but Bernie people out there, don't fall for those crocodile tears for the Republicans pretending you're your friends. Right, right, they're yeah. not your friends. <laughs> don't tell us their arguments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's why I have a little misgivings about listening to what Rick Wilson has to say, too. He's another Republican, but he claims he hates Trump and he really wants him uh, to lose. So I, I mean, I think the argument is challenging because the economy is so strong. I mean, I think it's, you know... You know, as Bill Clinton proved years ago, the economy is almost always the issue for people. I I always say that every losing Democratic candidate wishes they talked about the economy more. And the economy argument is complicated now. I mean, there's extreme income inequality. Uh, You know, Bernie had a great line in the debate the other night, half the country lives paycheck to paycheck. I think that's a really true statement, and I think it really resonates with people. Most people, I mean, the, the median income in America is about 60 grand. There's a heck of a lot of Americans all over this country living on 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45,000 dollars. That's not a lot of money when you're raising kids, you're paying rent, you have a car, you have a job you got to drive to. So that is, I think, a big part of the narrative. But, you know, we tend to look at the economy based on a low unemployment rate, based on the stock market. I mean, I think uh, half the country doesn't have any stocks uh, at all. Uh, yeah. I, 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 uh, that's why when Bernie talks about Medicare for all, that is, 
the the fastest way to uh, deal with the issue of income inequality, because if you take healthcare off the table as an expense coming out of your paycheck, you have more disposable income. And if you make it uh, a federally subsidized uh, insurance plan where the wealthier you are, the more you pay, then that is in itself, Peter, uh, income redistribution. That's directly dealing with in income inequality. And that, I believe, is why uh, the wealthiest people in this country who support the Republican Party are against it. Yeah, I think so, too. They don't want to give up their money. And they don't want to think about the others. They don't want to think about the others. That's what I'm saying. I, God bless you and Amaya Pawar for preaching the common good. But I'm thinking it was in the Chicago Tribune. I'm reading this thing in the show. I'm like, how did they get this past the Chicago Tribune editorial board? That's number one. It must be an old favor they were that Amaya called in. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is like, oh, I could just see some guy in uh, Kenilworth. Harumph! Yeah. <laughs> no, no. We got some letters, some nasty letters in response, but... Uh, but I think that there's a lot of truth to it. I think that when people remember what's special about this place, it's because we come together and we invest and do, do things, and that's what we need to do. We have crumbling infrastructure all over America. That's not going to be solved by trickle-down economics. You know, we've got struggling schools. That's not going to be solved by trickle-down economics. You know, schools, I, I, I always come back to the school issue because I spend so much time in it. Look at the issue of uh, integration, right? Mm -hmm. Integration was the big hope of 1954 Supreme Court decision and for the next 20 years they tried to force it and it led to white flight and it led to violent resistance and here we are in 2019 2020 and we're uh, just as segregated as we were 50 years ago mm -hmm. so and that's frankly a lot of progressives who say they care about integration don't act on it so it's on everybody. It is on everybody. All right, uh, let's shift gears to uh, the policing issue, the crime issue. We talk about that when you're on the show. Charlie Beck, who is, I, I don't know if he's the acting police chief or whatever, he's he has the position Interim. now. Interim. Interim, I believe is his uh, title. Gave a speech. I did not see the speech, uh, but it was, uh, it was reported in the Sun-Times, read the Sun-Times account. I don't think I've ever seen anything remotely uh, resembling it ever coming out of the mouth of a police chief in the city of Chicago in my lifetime. Uh, his essentially, I'm uh, paraphrasing it, uh, uh, aggressive stop and frisk programs have actually led to more crime, uh, which was uh, sort of the theme. And that he said that, well, I'm just telling you what the count was in the, tr in the Sun Times, mm. that when they relaxed uh, those aggressive tactics in LA, he said they was like, Progressive tactics contributed to the riots, uh, the Rodney King riots in 1992. Yes. And uh, part of the, the way that they uh, were able to reduce crime in L.A. was to move away, distance themselves from those. Old yeah, places. it's really interesting how uh, Chicago is in many ways uh, following in the path of Los Angeles. Los Angeles, of course, had the Rodney King incident in 1991, I believe. Uh, and it led to the riot a year later when the cops were acquitted um, in 92. Uh, but there was a video, there was a video, a defining video, and here we are, 2015, and the Laquan video comes out, and that's what forced everybody to stop and say. It wasn't Burge, Burge was like over, you know, over here, it had a few people, but that isn't what broke the back of sort of the, the code of silence and the culture of abuse. It was the video. Now, it's still not done. And I just finished a book on the whole L.A. reforms. It's called Blue by a guy named Joe Dominic. And Beck is all over the book. Um, 
and it took them another 10 years after Rodden, after the um, after the riots to bring in Bill Bratton who really started to change the culture and really said you have to do something and one of the guys he did was he took Charlie back and put him in the worst district in the city and said clean it up uh, and Charlie Beck did a great job, and then he became the successor police chief. And so he, we have Charlie Beck now. We've got the video to force us to take action. We're just 20 years behind. And, you know, they, they got their, their, um, their murder rate down to a third of our murder rate. We're still three times the murder rate of L.A. today. And they have 4,000 fewer cops than we do. And they have 1.3 million more people. So... They've made some big changes, and they really had a, they needed to make a culture change because they were a super macho department back in the 70s and 80s and 90s with Daryl Gates. You know, they were all about macho, macho, and they really had to change the culture and make it about working with the community and connecting. And Beck said all that in his speech the other day, so yeah. I, I was really impressed by it. Uh, and uh, last year, there were 492 homicides in the city of Chicago. Uh, the the city champion that were under 500, sort of a mixed message there. 492 is a lot of homicides. It's a real lot of homicides. And the facts are, we were in the 400s for most of this decade until 2016. So the first five years of this decade, I think one year we went over 500, but we were at 450, 420 even, up to 480. And then the Laquan McDonald video came out in November of 2015 and Gary McCarthy got fired, and in 2016, we had 761 homicides. We went up 59% in one year. So in the last three years, we've come back down to under 500, but we're right where we were at the earlier part of this decade. So we still haven't really changed the norm of gun violence in Chicago. Now, you, you, in relaying what you just said, you you sort of made a connection between the release of the Laquan McDonald video and the increase in homicides. Do you believe there was a correlation? I believe that the level of distrust that that video um, reflected and affirmed, I think, was a contributing factor in 2016. I mean, I don't know why uh, shootings would go up to 60%, 59%, but they did. I think probably the police were afraid to do their job, were fearful that that uh, they would, um, you know, that they would get in trouble for doing what they believed was the right thing to do, which was to crack down on guys that they thought had guns and guys that they thought had drugs, and they'd gone too far with that strategy. And that's, I think, what Beck was talking about. That at a certain point, that strategy works against you because nobody trusts you anymore. And without trust and without cooperation, you can't stop homicides. And when people think that there's no justice, which there wasn't, our clearance rate was especially low, it was about 25, 29% or something like that. When they think there's no justice, they take justice into their own hands. And so I think we were just in a kind of a no justice zone there for at least a year or two. And then it started to slip back and the police got their clearance rate back up. This year they announced it's 53%. Now in New York, it's about 75 or 80%. And in LA, it's about 75 to 80%. So, you know, we're getting there, but we have a long way to go. Do you think the more detectives need to be hired? Yeah, I think they did hire a couple of hundred more. And I think that helps. But that's a wing of the department where there was a lot of kind of, uh, I'm trying to think about the right way to characterize this. You know, first of all, it was, it was um, disproportionately white. So, you know, you have 
you know, you don't have, without diversity, it's sometimes harder to build trust uh, in the minority community. And um, and they were disproportionately old school. You know, the Burgess shop was in there, and so there was just a lot of guys from from the old school. And I think uh, one of the things that needs to happen and is slowly happening is that you got to start to, you know, weed those guys out, whatever. They're, they're leaving on their own through attrition. But there was just a lot of, uh, you know, that culture of, hey, we're going to get somebody for this murder no matter what. And, uh, you know, so that was, that was a problem. All right, Peter Cunningham, thank you so much. We're out of time here. Anything you want to uh, tell people about? Any concerts, any articles, anything you want to promote before I let you go? No, no, I'm just, you know, it's a great new year for Chicago. I'm, I'm excited by Mayor Lifewood's leadership. I think that, you know, the crime is still a huge issue. I think her vision for the West and South Side is exciting, but, you know, it's going to it's it's gonna require a lot more commitment from the business community to help with it. So, I'm just hopeful for Chicago to have a better year. All right. Let's uh, end it there on a hopeful note. Peter Cunningham, thank you so much. I also want to thank Jeff Johnson, Miles Conflossen from In These Times, uh, Miles Porter, and, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Peter Cunningham will gladly tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. Spotify, Google Play, Apple, all that stuff. Downloaders, you know we live stream this program, right? It's true. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. If you ever got some spare time, hang out, check the show out live, and join the live stream chat room. We'll see you tomorrow.